Good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be back. I uh, had a lot of people ask me what it was like, you know, just preaching to a, a bunch of women, and it, it really wasn't that different, you know. I uh, was really encouraged by just the warm reception and kindness you guys showed me, so I'm, I'm really excited to be back. Um, we're picking up in the book of Hebrews, obviously, and and again, I was just really encouraged over the weeks of the last two weeks, I guess, just with the various encouragements you showed me, and I uh, really appreciate that. And it just made me think, too, that, you know, so many of your pastors, uh, you know, sometimes we see them so often, take a little bit for granted the kind of sacrifices they make each week. So if you see them, you can encourage them in the same way you've encouraged me. And um, they got difficult ministries, each one of them, you know, and so uh, just keep praying for them and encouraging them as you can, and I'm sure that will go a long way. Um, So again, we're in the book of Hebrews. I'm really excited to be back here with you this morning. Um, As we're looking at the text, we're going to look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and we might turn a few places this morning. I won't go super fast like I did last week. Um, I try to slow down a little bit. I got a number of, you know, pump the brake signs from the back, you know, so we'll see what we can do. Uh, We're going to look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3. It's a really packed text. I feel like we could do a, a week on every single verse in the book of Hebrews, and we'd still be scratching the surface. Um, and that's why we wonder sometimes when we read about Puritans who preach like 250 sermons on just like one chapter of Isaiah. Um, that's probably why. So uh, overall, I just want to kind of dive into the book and get back into where we were at. Uh, just to kind of remind you of the theme of the book of Hebrews is it's all about the supremacy of Christ, as Rodney said. Uh, If we were to survey, I would think from the first verse to the last verse, you would see that overarching theme of the preeminence of Jesus Christ, the supremacy of Christ in all things, in in all spheres, in all avenues of life. And we could really apply every single one of these principles of Christ's supremacy into our lives of worship. And and I'll try to do some of that as we move along through the chapter today, but we will, again, barely even scratch the surface. So if you found your way to Hebrews chapter 1... As you remember, the audience is this mixed group. It's kind of like a normal church audience where you have seasoned saints, you have some weaker believers, and you maybe have some people who are just maybe a little self-deceived. Maybe they're not authentically Christian. They're just kind of pretenders who are here because of of family and things like that. And so he gives us these wonderful reminders throughout the book that no matter who you are, whether you're the seasoned saint or struggling Christian, the one thing you need is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Even if you aren't even a believer, the thing you need to be confronted with today is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. So he doesn't alter the message to who he's speaking to whatsoever. He's just constantly heralding that one glorious theme, and we'll look at that today. He's the the superiority of Christ. To the unbeliever in the book of Hebrews, he puts Christ on display to the struggling Christian, to the the seasoned saint, the, the marvelous, magnificent wonderful, merciful Savior who is the King of the universe, our prophet, priest, King, Jesus Christ. And that's how he begins the book. So let's go ahead and look at Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, and I'll read it for you. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world, He is the radiance of his glory 
the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's easy at first glance to look at just these three verses and see them as a bunch of kind of unrelated phrases, clauses, and statements about Christ and his divinity and his superiority. And while that is true from all these texts, all these phrases, it is about Christ's divinity and superiority. It serves a greater purpose to the whole book. It puts us on train tracks, so to speak, for the rest of the book, as he expresses the superiority of Christ over all three offices in Israel right here in this packed little three-verse section. He could have said a thousand things about the superiority of Christ, couldn't he? But he chooses these particular examples and phrases to kind of drive home. If that's all his people hear before they leave, they will hear the superiority of Jesus Christ. I want to see us look at that today. We see this, these deep and rich phrases display for us Christ's preeminence over the entire Old Testament system and offices. He does this with three key ways here. As we see the greatness of divine revelation and guidance brought in Jesus Christ over the Old Testament administration through those three offices, that of prophet, king, and priest. And so that'll be our outline for this text. We will see how Christ is the supreme revelation. He is the superior representative and he is the sufficient redeemer. We'll look at that this morning. So you can kind of keep that in mind um, as we consider these truths. So the first thing I want us to do is look at how Christ is the supreme revelation. He is greater than the prophets. Now, Jesus is fulfilling an Old Testament prophecy. Turn to Deuteronomy 18, so you can keep your hand in Hebrews and turn to Deuteronomy. I'll do this for each one of our texts today, because I want you to see how it's, it's tethered to the fulfillment of these Old Testament promises. And what it says about Christ's authentic humanity, what it says about his marvelous deity, and we'll bring those things together today. So I'll be pointing to some of that. So Deuteronomy 18, I'll give you a moment to turn there, 15 to 20. You can kind of keep your hand in Deuteronomy and Hebrews, or use one of those markers. All right, Deuteronomy 18. I'll just, I'll just read it and I'll point out some things. Deuteronomy 18, <clears throat> 15 to 20. The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your countrymen. You shall listen to him. This is in accordance to all that you asked of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of assembly, saying, let us not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let us not see that great fire anymore or I will die. And the Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will rise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. I shall come about, it shall come about that Whoever will not listen to his words or my words that I speak in his name or that he speaks in my name, I myself will require it of him. Talking about their life. But the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in the name which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. Can I get a sense of the severity of mishandling revelation from God? The Old Testament prophets brought God's message to the people. A wonderful consolation, a wonderful uh, stooping down, so to speak. 
They couldn't take in God as he was or as he appeared to them in the raging fire. And so God chose to accommodate their weakness with a mediator of revelation. The prophets were mouthpieces of God. When they spoke God's revelation, those words had the same authority as if God himself had said them. The prophet promised to the people in Deuteronomy 18, one greater than Moses is none other than Jesus Christ. He was raised up from among his countrymen. And that's what Deuteronomy 18, 15 tells us. And you shall listen to him. Remember, presenting the words of God is a very serious matter. Those prophets who uh, spoke commanding the authority of God, they, they were to speak, and if they spoke wrong, they received capital punishment. That's how severe the mishandling of God's word is. God takes his word very seriously. And so the claim of the message of Hebrews in these, just this first opening verses here is that Christ is the supreme revelation because he is the ultimate aim of all revelation. Let me look back at Hebrews 1 just to tie this back together. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2 is where we see this first point. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his son. God spoke that's Revelation. A.W. Pink once said, a silent God is an unknown God. God speaking is God expressing, revealing himself. Friends, if God didn't, you know, determine to reveal himself to us, what a terrible place we would be in. God has created all men for the sole purpose of declaring his praise. And in fact, we'll find no dissatisfaction in any other endeavor, no lasting satisfaction that is. And if God had not spoken, had not revealed himself, we'd be miserable creatures unable to fulfill any kind of purpose for which we were made. And yet, God was under no obligation to reveal himself. There is especially nothing that forced God to make himself known to a fallen creation. God condescends, and he speaks to us in baby talk. For example, as we look around the world, we can perceive things with our eyes in great detail. We look down upon the earth, you know, we can, we can see and comprehend with great detail all the created matter before us, can't we? But when we look at the sun, immediately our eyes are blunted and dulled. They serve us no use. They can't perceive its brilliance without being blinded. And that's the way it is with God infinite to finite human minds. We cannot comprehend him as he is unless he accommodates us and reveals himself to us and stoops down. And so for our sake, God condescends. He takes what is out of reach and he gives it to us in his wonderful word, his son. Now God chose to do this through the specific office in the Old Testament, the prophetic office. And the prophets were men who were entrusted with receiving, preserving, passing along revelation from God to his people. So the source of revelation, all of its authority, isn't in the office, it's in God himself, right? And when the prophets spoke in the Old Testament, they always prefaced their statements. Thus saith the Lord. But what do we see with Christ? He never once prefaces his statements. He doesn't have to. 
He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. He says, and I say to you, because he's the Lord of the universe. And when the rabbis of his day heard him speak that way, you've heard it said, but I say to you, that's Luke 4.32. They said, that is one who speaks with authority. I mean, just look at some of these descriptors we have here. To contrast the old prophets with Jesus Christ. We see it's timing. It says, long ago. Think about that, long ago. It's clearly teaching that what is known as progressive revelation. Progressive revelation is uh, the reality that God and his most wise counsel determined not to reveal everything about himself all at once and his eternal plan all at once because we just couldn't have taken it all in. He stoops down. He never sat down and explained it all to any one prophet in the Old Testament. But as men grew in knowledge, we see progressive revelation in the word. He reveals more of himself When it says long ago, it is making a dramatic contrast. There is something different about then, which was long ago, and now, which is right now in the present. In respect to when he spoke, it says it was periodically in the Old Testament. Now, through his word, the Son, for his people, it is continuous. It's continuous. So when the phrase says long ago, it's making that contrast between then and now, meaning Whatever was happening then is no longer sufficient for today. Or else there would be no need for that contrast between then and now. So the supremacy of Christ's revelation is established between what was happening then and what is happening right now. It says, in many portions, that's the next clause you see there. This expresses quantity. Portions here is speaking of the fact that in the Old Testament, there were different amounts of revelation given to each prophet. To some prophets, there was a lot of revelation given. And to other prophets, there was very little given. For example, Moses, the most important Old Testament prophet, had at least five entire books and some of the Psalms. He had roughly 80,000 words that God ordained for him to, to write, to specifically pen. And yet Obadiah, we only have 21 verses. In many portions. The quantity of revelation in the Old Testament is different from prophet to prophet. So when God spoke through the prophets, it was in many different allotments, many different portions, in many different ways. That's the next phrase. Many ways. We could spend all morning surveying just these. God spoke audibly with Moses. We see that in Numbers 12.8. He spoke through a pillar of cloud in Numbers 12.5. God spoke through a burning bush in Exodus 3.2. God revealed his divine nature through signs and wonders. He revealed himself through angels, Daniel 10, verse 8. We see God gave revelation to the prophets while some were sleeping, Genesis 31, 11. Through other prophets, through visions, Isaiah chapter 6. And God even spoke in a gentle whisper in 1 Kings 19, 12. Our text is telling us that God doesn't speak to us through those means anymore. He doesn't speak audibly. He doesn't speak in a pillar of cloud or a burning bush, signs or wonders, angels. He doesn't speak to us while we are sleeping or in our dreams or through visions or whispers or prayers. Today, God has spoken to us through the supreme means, his son. Here we see the son of God put on wonderful display. Christ is the son of God. Now, he's the son of God in two respects. First, in respect to his being the second person of the Godhead, he is the eternal son. He always has been the son. He's the very essence of God. 
And secondly, as we compare this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, we see Christ as the Son of God with respect to his incarnation. He became a man. So when Christ took on a sinless human nature, he didn't cease to be God. He didn't empty himself or put pause on his divinity, not at all. He's inseparably joined to the divine nature. He is God manifest in flesh, 1 Timothy 3.16. And it says, by this means of assuming humanity, he's the fulfillment of the prophet greater than Moses. Luke 1.35 says, for the child to be born shall be called the son of God. God spoke to us through one who became one of us. The ultimate accommodation, the supreme mouthpiece. He's greater than all the prophets. Luke 9.35, then a voice came out of a cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Do you see that? It's, It's even what our text is echoing, isn't it? He spoke through the word son. Listen to him. Deuteronomy 8.15, listen to him. Christ's authoritative prophetic office is abundantly clear. Calvin once said, this, however, remains certain, that by the perfection of doctrine which he brought, an end was put to all the prophecies, so that those who are not content with the gospel annex themselves from it and derogate from its authority. Think about that. If you're not content with the perfection of doctrine Christ brought, you annex yourself from his gospel. I mean, if you're searching for a more authentic meaning in life, a more authentic revelation from God than his son that you find exclusively in his word, then you're actually undermining Christ and you're cutting yourself off from him. I like how the language carries it here. It says, now God speaks to us through a new language. Son, that's how it reads. Much as a person speaks through uh, Spanish or French or Italian or whatever, or whatever. This is the speech that God uses. The speech of God is son. So as you cherish Christ, and hopefully you cherish him above all others, you will see him as this. Now let's just think about this just for a little bit longer before we move on. Hopefully you get the profundity of what he is saying here in the opening passages. The author of Hebrews is stating that as a Christian, you possess a more profound, more comprehensive understanding of God in those 66 books that you hold in your hand, through the gospel that Christ brought than any figure in the Old Testament. Did you ever stop to think about that? You've received a richer revelation than Moses had, a richer revelation than Abraham had, than David ever had. And that incredible blessing is a wonderful privilege that we shouldn't take for granted. It comes with great responsibility. We've been entrusted with the complete revelation of God in Christ, and it calls us to faith in him. That's the, the first thing we have to emphasize here. The Son represents God's ultimate and final revelation. Calvin said this again. He said, outside Christ, there is nothing worth knowing. And all who by faith perceive what he has like have grasped the whole immensity of heavenly benefits I know things seem hard on earth some days. At least some days are harder than others. But you have the whole of heavenly benefits accessible to you through the Son. So that's the first thing. We see he is a 
superior prophet. Now let's look at how he's a superior representative. Um, superior representative. He's greater than the kings. Turn back to Hebrews, and then we're going to look at Deuteronomy. So Hebrews 1, 2 to 3. So we'll look, pick up where we left off. Whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. He upholds all things by the word of his power. Wow. We may not see that at first glance, how this is related to kingship. But let me try to show you some parallels. We get a little bit about how he is greater than all the kings of Israel. He, the kings were an individual who was appointed, chosen by God to uphold righteousness by ruling and reigning on behalf of God for his people. This visible monarch was to uphold righteousness in two ways. If you again turn to Deuteronomy 17, um, I'll be reading from that just momentarily. The visible monarch, he was supposed to uphold righteousness in two ways. By being a representative of the law in his own life and by upholding the standards of the law by punishing wickedness. So not only was he to keep the law personally, he was likewise to enforce it. And we see some wonderful parallels with our text here. Deuteronomy 17. I'll read verses 14 to 15. And then I'm going to jump down to verse 18 to 20 so we don't spend too long there. But you can read the whole section sometime. Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 15. Let me read it. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you will say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. For surely you shall set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And here we go. One from among your countrymen. You shall set his king over yourselves. And then verse, verse 18. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may fear, learn the fear of the Lord, his God, by carefully observing all the words of this law and its statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to his right or to his left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. It's breathtaking what Hebrews does with just that bit of content. There are at least seven significant points there in just those concise verses, at least seven phrases. And it's all aimed to emphasize the, the regalness of the greatness of Christ, his kingliness. It helps in putting these kind of following statements into context when we start to consider how Christ is the heir of all things. You see that in the Hebrews text. You can turn back there. He's the heir of all things. You know, kings inherited or they were given their rulership in Israel. That was the way it was supposed to be. It wasn't something they could earn. It wasn't something that they could, you know, just take by force, although sometimes they did. It was intended to be appointed by God himself. They were heirs. And as an appointed one of God, the king would receive the inheritance of his kingdom. It's theirs by right. You, know, you don't have to be trained in, in, as a legal expert in inheritance law to kind of grasp this concept, right? If Jesus is to inherit all things, because he's the king of everything, according to both natures, he's God, he's the divine king, and he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, born from among his countrymen, he's the Davidic king. If he's set to inherit everything, what does that mean about our partaking in union with him? How are you connected to Christ? 
I mean, if he's the heir of all things and everything eventually belongs to him, then your share in that inheritance hinges on that faith relationship with him. Think about those family disputes, right? Over someone who you know, gets excluded from the will, it gets kind of messy. It's never a pleasant situation. Well, friends, if you want to be included in the divine inheritance, the only way, the only key is through faith in Christ. He's the heir of all things. And that puts us into subjection to our king. I mean, we really have to trust our lives to this. You have to consider that. Is, is he supreme, high, lifted up above all earthly pleasures and riches? Like your opportunities, your cars, your family, your friends, your houses, iPhones, whatever. Is he above those things? Would you willingly sacrifice all things on the altar of being faithful to the king? It shows if he's the supreme king of your life. Because he's the supreme passion of your soul. Our text tells us he's the heir. So consider that as you look at these next phrases. It says, through him, he created the world. You know, Christ is the one who created all things. Romans eleven thirty six. 36, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. What a, what a song. I mean, that's, that's the second phrase he's asking us to consider. In essence, the son plays a crucial role in the creation of the world. And the first chapter of the book of Hebrews tells us he's greater than any king who can build an earthly kingdom. We put a lot of trust in that here today, don't we? We trust men oftentimes to, to build a kingdom, to protect us, to keep us safe. I was telling us something wonderful about the divine king. He created all things. The opening line to the Apostles' Creed says that God is the maker of heaven and earth. So when the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was the creative cause through which God made the world. It's emphasizing his deity. He's the divine king. You know, when you recognize someone as the masterpiece of something, it's intended to elevate your appreciation for that person, acknowledge their, their work and the creating of something extraordinary. Things can only act according to their nature. Only God can create, and so he does. So as the sovereign creator who caused all things that has ever existed to exist, called them into being from nothing by the mere desire of his will. And you see, the kings of Israel were supposed to put their trust in the divine king. King David called God the true king. Psalm 29, 10. As the Lord sat as king at the flood, yes, the Lord sits as king forever. There's a king above the king David. The kings of Israel were typological. They pointed to the eternal king. They pointed to him who was to come. And they found their strength in him, and their only success in life was when they were resting in him. 1 Samuel 36, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. I think this is wonderful in Psalm 8. You can turn to Psalm 8 as well. Psalm 8. Just read this Psalm with David. Psalm 8, I'll just read the first nine verses, and I'll, I'll bring it back to Hebrews. A Psalm of David. O Lord, our God, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We sing that hymn from time to time, right? Who have displayed your splendor above all the heavens. For the mouth of infants and nursing nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you take care of him? 
yet you have made him a little lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You see this psalm quoted multiple times in the book of Hebrews. The hope that David had rested in the hands of the God King. It it can therefore be properly said, David's hope rested in this eternal King. That's what we're seeing here, the King of creation. David's hope rests in the power of Christ. And David himself trusted Christ as King. Again, the kings displayed their power by conquering foreign enemies. David's a good example of that. He killed Goliath when he was just a youth. And myriads of others. We see that in 1 Samuel 18, 7. It says, they danced and they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David is tens of thousands. What does David do? What sets David apart from all the other kings of the world and all of history? Is that he knew that his eternal destiny was in the hands of God. Think about how superior Christ's power is to David's. He created the world, John 1, 3. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing has came into being that has come into being. That's a far superior feat than just conquering enemies. No king in Israel ever permanently did that. Christ will put all of his enemies into subjection to his feet. Christ's power put on a wonderful display as the creator, the governor, the sustainer of all things. Remember, one day every knee will bow to his kingship. We see that he's a greater representative. We see a third example of that here. He's the radiance of his glory. You know, in the Old Testament, our, our revelation of God was a veil. It wasn't complete, it wasn't always clear, but in Christ, we have the exact radiance of his glory. Everything that God is, everything that God does, everything that embodies what it means for God to be God is Jesus Christ. And as we look among the creation again, we get that example maybe from the sun. Just as the rays of the sun reach the earth and and light the earth and warm the earth and give light and growth to the earth, so Jesus Christ is the glorious light of God shining into the hearts of men. And to carry that into a kind of a theological context, as, as you know well, the brightness of the sun is the same nature as the sun. It's as old as the sun. Never was the sun without its brightness, and the brightness can't be without the sphere of the sun. They can't be separated. The sun is not the sun without the sphere. The sun is not the sun without the rays. Both are essential. And so we see with Christ, one nature with the Father and Spirit, yet distinct in person. And so Christ is the same nature as the Father. That's what's being stressed here for us. He's as old as the Father. He's eternal. Never was the Father without him, nor he without the Father, and never or in any way can he be separated from the Father because there is one God, and it is the same brightness of the sun as the sphere, and neither is Jesus the Father. He's the Son, and yet we see distinction of person. What a wonderful example for us here. Spurgeon said this, As light is to the sun, so is Jesus to the glory of God. He is the brightness of that glory. And that is to say, there is not any glory in God but what is also in Christ. And when that glory reaches its climax, when God the ever-glorious is most glorious, the greatest glory of God is Christ. You know, the sun is not just some kind of a manifestation. He is God himself. That is what we see in that phrase. He's the exact representation of his nature, of his essence, of his being. No king of Israel ever perfectly fulfilled that, perfectly representing God to the people. They never did. 
It uses this word, he's the engraved image. It kind of gives us a picture of what happened with the Old Testament priests. They wore a breastplate and they had an engraved thing that said holiness unto God written on it. Christ is the engraved image of God. It's impossible to describe this mighty representative. We could look at so many things. And if the sky were scrolls and all the grass of the earth pens and the oceans ink, we couldn't even fill all the books with how he perfectly reflects God to us. Christ represents the Father perfectly. He kept the law. Remember Deuteronomy 17 or 18, the king was to write down God's law. He was to meditate on it, live by it. So as to to live out the life that God required for his people, to be a pattern for them to follow, to fulfill the law for them. David never fulfilled that role. He never fulfilled that role. He never kept the law. David failed in some remarkable ways, remember? But God in Christ kept the law perfectly. In our place, it's, it's the great exchange. Our sins for his righteousness. We get the kingly robes of inheritance of righteousness in Christ, and he took our sins in filthy covered rags. And that's the story from rags to riches. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Christ, our king, has kept the law in our stead, perfectly representing God's law to us and for us. We see he's a better king. Let's move on to the next one. He's a better provider, a better protector. It says he upholds all things by the word of his power. What provision? I mean, the kings of Israel are supposed to sustain the nation. They're supposed to protect it from enemy forces uh, to, again, preserve its law. But no king of Israel ever did that. They never controlled all the land of Israel, not perfectly and not for very long if they ever did. They always lost what they gained. They always failed to preserve the nation. But Christ is a superior king because he sustains all things. Whatever he is entrusted with, he cannot lose. He upholds all things. You know, the Greeks in mythology had Atlas who upheld the earth on his back. But the author of Hebrews is saying Jesus Christ has done far more than that. He not only upholds the world, but he moves it towards its ultimate end and destiny. He's the providential upholder of all things. And so Jesus Christ has put on a wonderful display, uh, and most of the world never sees it. He's the aim and end of all creation. It's represented by his sovereign wonder of what he does. It's described here as the created one, the preserver of all things. I mean, just think about that. He sustains every breath we take, and even the breath of those who revile him with it. Just think about that lofty thought. Our world right now, in all of its turmoil, and all of its dysfunction, is upheld by our king. And it was upheld by him while he was an infant, while he was in his mother's womb, while he was compassionate to the brokenhearted, while he was healing the sick, and while he was hanging on the cross. He upheld all things. Nothing is that he didn't speak into being. If he didn't will it, it would crawl back into the nothingness from which it came. For by him all things consist. He upholds all things by the word of his power. The world was created as a stage on which to display this wonderful king. And we have to move along. Christ is the supreme revelation. He's greater than the prophets. Christ is the superior representative. He's greater than the kings. And finally, he's the sufficient redeemer. He's greater than the priest. This is probably one of my favorite aspects of the entire book of Hebrews. Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, the very end here. Let me read it. And when he made purification of sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Old Testament priests declared the will of God. They, they gave the covenant of blessing. They directed the sacrifices for atonement. That's the primary role of the priests was to mediate God to man. That's what they were supposed to do. 
How then can man be brought near to God? How can they have a voice in the presence of a holy God when they're so miserably guilty, stained and defiled by their very nature? We see through the wonderful atonement of our Lord, the satisfaction of God's wrath, the propitiation of his wrath. In the Old Testament, the priest functioned as a way to facilitate that role. We see it in Leviticus 16. I won't have you turn there just for time. Hebrews 16, I'll read it to you, 15 to 16. Now, Lord God spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when he had approached the presence of the Lord and died. They, again, ran in and decided to offer their own sacrifices unprescribed. The Lord gave specific instructions for Aaron there and how to approach him, when to approach him in the Holy of Holies, how serious the atonement was and being in the presence of God. This is what Leviticus 16 reads, 15 to 16. Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. And he shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting, which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. All of Hebrews 7 to 10 is concerned with this, the priesthood of Christ. We surveyed that a little bit last week. Hebrews 9, 22 and verse 26 says, according to the law, one may almost say that all things are cleansed with blood. That's pretty much what we just read. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Otherwise, he would have need to offer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he's made purification to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 1 Peter 2.24, And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds we are healed. As a mediator free from taint, He, by his own holiness, procured the favor of God for helpless sinners. Because of the character of God, which is holy, it's hostile towards sin, propitiation is necessary to bring sinners into favor with God. So Christ fulfilled his priestly office, brought a sacrifice of himself, and offered it as both priest and sacrifice of his own body. Charles Spurgeon said this, he said, quote, The holy Christ, incapable of sin, stooped to purge our sins. I want you to meditate upon that wondrous work and to remember that he did it before he went back to heaven. Is it not a wonderful thing that Christ purged our sins even before we had committed them? There they stood before the sight of God as already existent in all their hideousness, but Christ came and purged them. Christ made this purchase as our perfect substitute. He took the place we deserved. The wrath of God hung over us. He stands in our place. And the text tells us something amazing about his priestly work. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's telling us something about the completeness, sufficiency, and efficacy of his work. His work is sufficient, friends. And there's a a contrasting parallel here that we have to kind of comprehend again in the weightiness of these words. On the great day of atonement, when the priest of Israel performed the sacrifices for the people's sins, while they presented themselves before God, it's one thing to see Jesus Christ just as our high priest. It's quite another thing, though, to see him as seated. If you remember the Old Testament priest, we could have read all of Leviticus. The one thing the Old Testament priest never did was take a seat. Priests in the temple always stood. Remember, there were no seats. There were no chairs. There were no stools. There was nowhere, not a counter for them to lean on. There were no seats in the temple, the tabernacle. There was only one seat in the tabernacle. And guess what? That was the mercy seat on top of the Ark of Covenant. And no priest would dare sit on that. It's the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. Again, they wouldn't even dream of going near it, let alone sitting on it. 
We have this wonderful picture of Jesus Christ after he's completed his work. He sits. He sits down. Think about it. They had, they had to stand and they had to shake in the presence of God. They couldn't rest. They had to tremble in fear. If they messed up, they could be struck dead. There's an old story that they would tie ropes to the ankles of the priests while they were in there with bell. And if they stopped hearing the bell ring, they would drag them out. We get a picture there of the seriousness of what it's like to be in the presence of a holy God who will not allow imperfection to stand in his sight. They present themselves to make intercession for the people. They're not allowed to sit. Their work is never done. It's never sufficient. It's never finished. So they can't sit. They do this every year. When they finish, they had the next year, and the year after that, and the year after that. And on top of that, the daily sacrifices they had to do. The priests in the Old Testament were insufficient because they were pointing to someone greater to come. Friends, we have that greater priest. Our high priest is Christ, who having once for all, having offered himself as the sacrifice for sin, he has now gone to the most holy place, and there he sits. He's able to rest because his work is complete. Think about it. When you go to the store and you pay the required price for something, don't you expect it to belong to you? Well, how much more so that the king of kings who has paid a price to his own father with his own life will receive the reward, his bride. Christ will have what he has bought. And that is why we're told he sits. Let me tell you one more thing about the priestly intercession. In the book of Leviticus, there's another task that's ascribed to the priests other than offering sacrifices. That's one part of it. But the other uh, thing he's supposed to do is he's supposed to offer prayers to God, which is symbolized in the burning of the incense that would take the smoke and raise it up to God symbolically, showing it's taking the prayers from the priest up to God. What is it telling us about Jesus Christ? He's not just, just sitting there basking in honor with servants waving great fans around him, singing songs and feeding him grapes. He's actively and compassionately advocating for you. And again, there's one unique mention of Jesus Christ like this in the New Testament. All the times we see, he's seated at the right hand, he's seated at the right hand, he's seated at the right hand. But there's one time we're told he's standing at the right hand. You remember where that happens? Just to share that with you, Acts 7, 56. This is when Stephen is being martyred for his unwavering faith in Jesus Christ. I mean, think about that. He's being bludgeoned to death, piece by piece with stones. He's nearing his end, and he sees heaven open up. And what does he see? Not Jesus sitting, Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. What does that tell us about his standing? He's interceding for his beloved martyred saint, to press on and continue, and he's praying on his behalf at that moment. Standing is a posture of prayer in the Old Testament. So we see that even in the New. Think about Moses, interceding for the Israelites, right? Battling God's enemies. He had his hands outstretched the whole time. It's a posture of intercession. And that's what the message we see with Stephen is. He's living to intercede for us in every one of our moments of need, right? When you're laying down your life sometimes, He's interceding on your behalf. He, again, he's not merely lounging around. He's perpetually interceding for us. And why is that so important? Well, because when your Christian journey feels sluggish or lacking and you hit some hard road, it's Jesus that we desperately need. When a Christian life seems to be losing its steam, Jesus is our answer. 
In him resides the fullness of deity in bodily form. He holds the blessings of God, the source of eternal life. And so if we ever feel spiritually empty, it's, it's not because he's empty. It's because we need more of him. He's our supreme revelation. He's greater than the prophets. He's our superior representative. He's greater than all the kings. He's a sufficient redeemer. He's greater than all the priests. Spurgeon once said this. I'll close with this. How often are we hidden from evil by the prayers of Jesus? We don't know, my brethren, how many poisoned arrows are caught upon the shield of our Lord's intercession. What a wonderful reminder for us today. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for our opportunity to delve into your word. Lord, I pray that you would um, enhance this study in the lives of the saints here as they continue to meet together and study this week in and week out. I pray that you would just uh, pour riches of blessing upon their souls, have them feel satisfied in you alone. Lord, may you get what you are worthy of from us here today. In Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.